Luke 19:28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, if you've been following the news, you will know that it was one week ago today that the Ocean Gate expedition left for a deep sea dive to explore the remains of the Titanic some two and a half miles below the surface. Ocean Gate is a company that offers a once-in-a-lifetime experience to board a five-passenger submersible called the Titan to see up close one of the most iconic shipwrecks in modern history. But it was only an hour and 45 minutes into this expedition that it lost contact with its research vessel, the Polar Prince. After eight hours had passed without any communication, the search began. The U.S. Coast Guard coordinated with Canadian authorities and other commercial vessels to search for the Titan. Roughly 900 nautical miles east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. For a vessel that was designed to only be underwater for a maximum of 24 hours, time was critical. As of Tuesday, 10,000 square miles had been searched with the Canadian Coast Guard, Navy, and private research vessels also offering their assistance. It was obvious that the threat to these explorers was very real. Being submerged at that depth for too long could bring on hypothermia, the deep sea being brutally dark and frigid. Another major threat, of course, was the oxygen levels within the vessel. 
The literature for the Titan boasted that it had enough oxygen to sustain five passengers for 96 hours. But as hours turned into days, it became evident that they were running out of time. We all hoped and prayed that there would be good news. But it was on Thursday that their deaths were confirmed. A debris field was found on the sea floor, which led to the discovery of the Titan's tail cone and other pieces, all about a quarter of a mile from the Titanic wreckage. It had become clear that the five passenger vessel suffered a, quote, catastrophic implosion, killing everyone on board instantly. One deep sea expert in an interview said that the implosion would have happened so quickly, and he used the term milliseconds, that everyone would have died before even being able to process what was happening. Which I think is the only silver lining to that tragedy, that they did not have to suffer an agonizing death by freezing or by oxygen deprivation. And certainly the whole thing was a tragedy, and the news outlets have been feeding us all kinds of information about this. Now, I want you to imagine that you were one of the five passengers, and you boarded the vessel last Sunday having full knowledge of everything that was about to happen. Not just knowing the potential danger involved, but knowing the series of events that would lead to your tragic and untimely death. As you boarded the vessel, you knew it was your final week. As we come to our text today, we find that Jesus not only knew about His impending death, but that He was in total control of the circumstances leading up to it. Jesus not only enters Jerusalem with the understanding that He is going there to die, but He even works out some of the particulars leading to its consummation. Now, let's talk about context. I didn't preach out of Luke last week, so let me give you some review. We saw two weeks ago a parable that Jesus taught, which has been called the parable of the Minas. And in that parable, there is a nobleman who goes to a faraway country to receive a kingdom and then to return. This teaching was a corrective to those who thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to take up an earthly throne and to set, up a, uh, to set Israel free from Roman occupation. That was in the minds of the disciples. That was their perspective of what the Messiah was going to do. And so Jesus teaches a parable to change their thinking. Jesus would reign, but first He must go to a far country, which was a picture of heaven. And then after a period of time, He would return again, which is a picture of the second coming. And so, Jesus entering Jerusalem in the presence of the disciples was not going to be the week of His coronation. It was going to be the week of His death. So Luke 19.28 is where it all begins. 
And it says, when Jesus had said these things, what things? This parable He just taught. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now what's going to happen for the next several chapters in Luke's Gospel is what the parable describes. He's preparing to receive a kingdom. He's going to give to His disciples what they need to serve Him in His absence. He will be confronted by a mob who hate Him and say, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so rather than what's about to take place being an interruption in the plan of God, namely Jesus being crucified, we discover it is the plan of God. It's always been the plan of God. Luke 19.28 brings us to the final week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. It has been called Passion Week. It is that one week period between Palm Sunday and the resurrection that is the focal point of why Jesus came. Jesus ministered for roughly three and a half years. There was teaching, there were miracles, there was healing, all recorded for us in the Gospels. And yet it is this final week that is the most emphasized in all of the entire life of Jesus. In fact, if you were to pull all four Gospel accounts together, you would find that 30% of that collective work is dedicated to this one week. It is the major emphasis of these eyewitness accounts. And that is because, as we know, Jesus came to die. He did not come to free the, the, the Jews from Roman occupation. He did not come to make them prosper as a nation. He did not come to elevate them amidst their political rivals in the ancient Near East. He did not come to make Israel great again. Jesus came to remedy their sin problem, and not only the Jews, but all people everywhere. Jesus came to reconcile us to our Creator. He came to bring us to God. The events surrounding Passion Week is what all of the Old Testament points forward to, and it's what all of the New Testament looks back upon. And it all starts here in Luke 19.28. This is the event that sets all of the other events into motion. The fulfillment of prophecy. The ambivalent crowds. The hostile Pharisees. And there's a lot to cover. This is a long passage. I'm not going to be able to get into all of the details, but I want to give you the big idea so that you can see the burden of the passage. And I believe the big idea is that Jesus fulfills the plan of God even knowing that the cross awaits Him. So Jesus deliberately and with full knowledge of the future embraces the events that are coming 
because he knows that is how God, his Father, will save the world. This means, as we read the next several chapters of Luke, that Jesus is not a victim. Jesus did not encounter an unfortunate series of events that led to his execution. All of what happens the final week of his life was meticulously planned in the mind of God, and Jesus is working in accord with his Father to carry it out. That is what I want you to see. And I will make a few observations to prove this. First of all, the timing. These events that take place from Luke 19.28 on all happen on the Passover week. The time when all the Jews scattered abroad were to be in Jerusalem for this yearly festival. It was the time when a 100,000 lambs would be slaughtered in sacrifice as a memorial to the great event in which God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. God ordained that it was this Passover that Jesus would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not coincidental. This is according to God's timetable. All of the Old Testament symbolism in the Passover Lamb would be fulfilled in Jesus in this one week. So the timing shows us Jesus fulfilling God's plan. Second observation The details of this passage show us. Look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now Luke does not mention what kind of animal it is. Matthew tells us it is the colt of a donkey. And so Jesus, the traveling teacher who has almost no personal resources, needs to procure an animal, specifically a young donkey, so that he can ride it as he enters Jerusalem. And the details that follow show us the absolute control that Jesus has. Notice, he knows its location. Verse 30, he says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. Now, how would Jesus know this? These are villages they have not yet entered. This specific word is given to the disciples so that they and you recognize that Jesus is in control of what's happening. 
These are so that we might see that Jesus is fulfilling the plan of God. He knows its location. He also knows its condition. Again, verse 30, the second half. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Now, I've read this a number of times. I've read commentaries. I don't have a clue why Jesus would have to ride on a colt that had not not yet been ridden. Maybe it represented some kind of purity thing. Maybe it was because this was a monumental event and so we wanted to make sure that uh, no one had ever ridden it before and it would be way more appropriate that way for this occasion. I don't know. But when I pull back and look at this, I do know something, and that is that Jesus is directing this entire sequence. He knows its location. He knows its condition. He's even in control of its acquisition. Verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So the disciples go and they find it just as he said in the place that he said, in the condition that he said. And just as he said, they're going to untie it and someone says, hey, what are you doing? It would seem to me that this looks like thievery. And they tell the owner what Jesus told them to say. The Lord has need of it. And you know what the owner does? Okay. (laughs) I mean, the God of Israel needs your animal. And He surrenders it. That just seems strange to me, but that just shows me that this series of events events is, is meant to point us to a big idea, truth, and that is that what is about to happen to Jesus is not going to be accidental. He's not a victim here. He's not about to be deceived by the enthusiasm of the crowds. He's not about to be blindsided by the plot of the Pharisees to orchestrate His death. He is in control of even the minute details surrounding this final week. So, Jesus is in control of the timing, the Passover, He's in control of the details, the donkey. And thirdly, He's in control of the fulfillment of prophecy. Now there was a reason that Jesus rode on a young donkey into Jerusalem. It wasn't because that is all that was available. It wasn't because that was somehow His preference. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9 that tells us 500 years before Jesus was born that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem this way. In other words, it had to happen like this. Zechariah 9.9, I'll just read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 500 years before Christ came, God inspired the prophet Zechariah to pronounce to Israel that the Messiah was going to come. He would be humble and he would be entering Jerusalem on a donkey. So here's something to look for, Israel. This is a picture of your Messiah. So Jesus sends the disciples They carry out this plan as Jesus directs them to do. And this should have alerted anyone who's familiar with Messianic prophecy that this was happening right before them. And I think between the Gospel accounts of what's being spoken here and the prophecy of the Old Testament, you would have to choose to ignore the evidence that both Old and New Testaments describe concerning this event. And of course, we know people do choose to ignore the evidence. Many of you know the name Ben Shapiro. He runs a news outlet called The Daily Wire. He is a conservative Jew and he speaks with clarity on many political issues of our day. And a year ago, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast and Joe asked him what he thought about Jesus. Now, Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He wears a yarmulke. He, 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 he keeps the Sabbath. He obeys the law as best he can. And he does not believe Jesus was the Messiah. So this is interesting when Joe asks him. So he says, what do you believe about Jesus? Now, Joe is not a Christian. I mean, I think this is a wonderful question to ask somebody. He follows up and says, do you believe he was a prophet? And Shapiro said, no, I don't even believe he was a prophet. And Rogan asked again, well, who do you believe that he was? And he said, I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble." just like a lot of other Jews at that time who were crucified for trying to lead revolts and they got killed for their trouble. Now, obviously, to hold that position, you have to disregard every eyewitness account of Jesus from the first century. The miracles, the healings, the teachings... But also, as someone who professes to believe the Old Testament, you would have to disregard all of the prophecy concerning Jesus, 300 or so prophecies, including this one from Zechariah chapter 9. And so I imagine that Ben Shapiro is looking at this from a historical perspective. He grew up in a Jewish home. Jews don't believe in Jesus. And so he looks at history and says, yeah, the Romans crucified a lot of people. Jesus was just another unlucky soul. But instead what we find is that every detail of every event that is going to take place here was not only ordained by God, but it was also known by Christ. It was carried out by Christ. 
Listen to R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke. He says, what we see here on Jesus' part is careful premeditation. He was carefully coordinating everything. The day and hour had been selected in eternity past. The timing was precise. The mode of his entry, a previously unridden donkey, was carefully chosen. Never before had Jesus done anything to promote a public demonstration. In fact, he had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds if there was any hint of such a thing. But now he invited attention, even though that meant courting danger. So what God wants us to see in this passage is that this was all his plan. He so loved the world that he gave his son, not as a revolutionary who was tragically killed, but as a savior for those who come to him by faith. This was not plan B for God. It wasn't like he sent Jesus into the world and the Jews rejected him and God said, well, I have another idea. I mentioned in my sermon last week, how does God declare guilty people as righteous? And I talked about the gospel, how we need a substitute, and that is the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to die in the place of the guilty. It is not as Ben Shapiro believes that Jesus was just another insurgent who was trying to overthrow Rome. You would have to ignore every piece of historical evidence about the person of Christ to believe that. Or as Albert Schweitzer argued, that Jesus was simply, quote, crushed under the cruel wheel of history. It's nothing of the sort. What you find when you read the Gospels is that Jesus is the one turning the wheel. Jesus is the one moving history forward as it has been determined by God in eternity past. Now, let's just pause here for a second and think, how does this affect how you think about God? Or maybe I'll ask it another way. What might that tell you about God's love for you? In other words, if God is moving all of these pieces into place, if Jesus is willfully surrendering his life, he's going to the cross with full knowledge of everything that's about to happen to him, and he does it to save sinners, what does that mean? make you think about His love for you. It must be extraordinary. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions in Romans 8, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, God put forth Christ so that you can be reconciled 
And if you are reconciled, then you become God's child. And if you become God's child, then God watches over you with the meticulous kind of care that He has for Jesus. We become children of God. We share in Christ's inheritance. That means that if you suffer today, remember who is in control of these things. If anything happens that brings you grief in this life, you can rest confidently that even then, God is at work. Sometimes people object to the idea that God is at work in our suffering. A popular idea all the way back to the time of Jesus was, well, you must have done something wrong because God is angry with you. We like to think of God as being involved in our blessing, but many resist the idea that God is involved when we suffer. And so they cannot reconcile what has been called the problem of evil, why bad things happen. And they object to the idea that God's plan in your life could involve suffering. That might be part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And if you say, I cannot reconcile that, and you say, I do not believe that God ordains anything in my life that would be evil or suffering or anything that causes me grief, you haven't done away with the problem. You've just done away with the hope. In other words, what you need at that time is a God who is sovereign over your problems. What you need at that time is a God who is in control of the universe, which includes you and your suffering. Just as you need a God who is in control of Christ and His suffering. This is why we can have joy as Christians when good things happen, bad things happen, My God is still on His throne and He has ordained all things for my good and therefore whatever this present trial is must be for my good and for His glory. That's why Christians can have joy. Now back to our text. The disciples, they get the the donkey They bring it to Jesus. They're excited. There's enthusiasm there. They're largely ignorant of what is going on. But they know it's something significant. So look at verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Now, throwing down the cloaks on the path would be a symbol of honor. This is akin to our rolling out the red carpet. It's what you would do for royalty. But there's another symbol here, and that is to allow a rider to trample on your cloak was representative of him trampling on you. In other words, it's a picture of your absolute submission and your absolute allegiance. And it would do you no good if you were trampled on. But you put down your cloak as representative saying, you own me. You rule over me. And I am willingly subjecting myself to that. And so these disciples are demonstrating that they believe that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And while they will continue to be confused about what's going to take place later in this Passion Week, they do believe that He's Israel's King. So Jesus is on the donkey, the cloaks are on the path, He's entering Jerusalem, and this entire picture communicates something very important. This is not a declaration of war. Jesus is not riding into Jerusalem on a war horse looking to conquer. He is not looking to start a revolution, at least not in the sense that we think of it. And the truth be told, no one who is looking to make war comes riding a donkey. A donkey was the most non-threatening way to approach a city if you were a king. I mean, if he got off the donkey and stood next to it, he would probably be taller than when he was riding the donkey. It's a picture of humility, and it's a picture that he is bringing peace. So picture ancient Israel... They are an occupied territory. There are Roman soldiers all throughout the land. And Roman soldiers communicated strength with their presence. They rode these majestic stallions. They had armor. They had weapons. And they sat high. And here is Jesus, low and humble. And He's entering Jerusalem to bring peace. Now, this would be a massive corrective to their messianic expectations. Jesus comes to bring peace, and He comes to bring the most important and necessary peace imaginable. Peace with God. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, says this, Jesus riding a donkey would have the effect of damping down nationalist expectations. He does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse which would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy. But He chooses to present Himself as the King who comes in peace, gentle, and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9. So the coming of the gentle king is associated with the cessation of war 
And the cessation of war that it represents is a cessation of war between rebels and God. And whether the disciples recognize this or not, look what they're saying in verse 38. Second half. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why do they say peace in heaven? I don't even think they know what they're saying. They're surprised when Jesus is crucified. But what Jesus is bringing is peace in heaven between God and sinners by His substitutionary atonement that all begins in His entry into Jerusalem. This is kicking off this most important of all weeks. And God's wrath is going to become extinguished for those who believe because of what Jesus will accomplish. And so He rides into the city on a donkey and it's a picture of bringing peace. But this is not the King the majority of the people wanted. They wanted their broken country fixed. They wanted to no longer be ruled by Gentiles. They wanted peace at their borders. But peace with God? I mean, they have the law, they have the temple, they have the commandments, they have the Sabbath. They have their whole religious system that's supposed to take care of that. Peace with God is a foreign concept that is not even on their radar. And is this not the same issue that we have today? Human nature does not change. People do not seek after God by nature. They want their temporal circumstances changed, improved. They want a better life. They want a safer country. They want their political hacks in office, but they're not wringing their hands wondering how they can have peace with God. It's not their concern. They have their religious beliefs. They have their philosophies about life. And they are totally content in having those things. And they're not interested in this kind of king. And so they want someone to fix their problems now. I do not like evangelistic messages that tell people that Jesus can fix their problems. I do not like them. Unless they're talking about their problem of sin. Yes, Jesus can give you a better marriage. Yes, Jesus can free you from addiction. Yes, Jesus can do all kinds of transformative things in your life. But the main problem that you have is sin. And if Jesus comes and takes care of that, then a good tree begins to bear good fruit and those problems become fixed, become healed. But people are so fixed on fixing problems and fixing the broken system and getting a political leader to get us out of this mess. And when you talk to them about Jesus, it sounds ridiculous. Oh, don't bring religion into this. They don't see 
that this is the kind of king that they need. And so this is not the king that Israel is looking for. He's certainly not the one the religious leaders were looking for. This is not the king that they wanted. Notice in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That is a sermon in itself, but I will work towards a conclusion here. For three years, the hostility against Jesus has been building. In John's account, we see the extent of their opposition to Him. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, and we are told in John chapter 11, verse 53, From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So a few weeks before this event of Jesus entering Jerusalem, Jesus does this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and rather than the Jews falling on their face in worship, saying, this has to be the one we've been waiting for, they get together and plot how they're going to kill him. And they plot how they're going to kill Lazarus too. Poor Lazarus, he's already died once. (laughs) Now I think it's interesting to point out that they never denied his works. You never see the Pharisees claiming that his works were fraudulent. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, none of them said it was a fake. They knew that he'd been in there for four days. They didn't deny what he did. But they hated him because he did not line up with what they thought the Messiah would be. He did not line up with their broken religious system. And here in their indignation, they want this whole scene broken up and they want the disciples silenced And they believe Jesus must be stopped. Now, of course, this is all taking place according to the will of God. Jesus knows this going into it. Jesus knows they're going to refuse Him. Jesus knows that many in the crowds who are saying Hosanna are going to be saying crucify just a few days later. And if the Jews in Israel would not serve Him as their King, then God opens it up to the nations who someday would. This too was the plan of God. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, thank You that even the rejection of the Jews by the Jews, even something like that, even the details surrounding Lazarus, even the hardening of the Pharisee's heart, even the unwillingness to hear his teaching and believe his miracles, even that, you were working together to bring about this one pivotal event 
in the history of the world, Christ crucified. And we thank You, Lord, that You so loved us that You have ordained this for us that we might become the children of God, that we might become in relationship to You, and that we might enjoy You now and forever. Please bless our people, Lord. Please, as we consider our own suffering in this life, bad circumstances, trouble that befalls us, problems that we discover, hardships, surprises, health issues, financial, relationship, whatever it might be, Lord, may we firmly rest in Your safe and capable hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.